This week, Danny Masterson, that 70s show star, was found guilty of two counts of rape. And less than a month ago, a Manhattan jury, sitting in a civil trial filed by Miss E. Jean Carroll against Mr. Donald Trump, did not, did not find Mr. Trump liable for rape, as Miss Carroll has claimed for years. Rape is the most, and has been the most, um, underreported crime that we know of. Why is that? You know, this I've seen firsthand the skepticism that prosecutors have towards women who report rape, and the lack of sensitivity and the victim blaming is endemic in the system. And in interviews, they said that they believed the victim, but they didn't want to send the rapist to jail because he had graduated college and they didn't want to ruin his future. The Bonobo Sisterhood Revolution Through Female Alliance is to build a collective self-defense that is based on Bonobo behavior where the females defend one another from male sexual coercion. All of the elements were written by men. All the elements of rape and the definitions of rape, what constitutes rape and how to prove it, are written by men. Did you know that originally rape was a crime of trespass to property? Let me say that again. The rape of a woman was a crime of trespass to property. Why property, you may ask? Because the woman was deemed to be the property of her father or her husband. Hey there, news peelers. Today is June second, two thousand twenty-three, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both, and let's get into it. Mr. Masterson was charged with raping three women at his Hollywood Hills home between 2001 and 2003. Mr. Masterson did not testify in his trial, and his lawyers did not call any witnesses. A jury of seven women and five men, having deliberated for seven days over a period of two weeks, found him guilty on two of the three counts of rape at his second trial, and he may get up to 30 years to life in prison. He's 47 years old now. The third count of rape, for which the jury did not reach a unanimous guilty verdict, related to a former girlfriend. And according to AP News, the Church of Scientology was heavily involved in this trial. An interesting story in itself that I won't get into here. Separately, on May 9, less than a month ago, a federal jury composed of six men and three women, within three hours of deliberation, unanimously reached a verdict. That Mr. Trump, our former president, is liable for sexually abusing and defaming Eugene Carroll, who is a journalist, author, and advice columnist. Mr. Trump presented no witness in this civil trial, and he did not show up to the trial either. Instead, as reported by the Wall Street Journal in a videotaped deposition under oath, he claimed that Ms. Carroll's case is the most ridiculous, disgusting story, and also claimed that she brought this case for publicity and political reasons. As you well know, Mr. Trump was ordered to pay Ms. Carroll five million dollars in damages, and just about two weeks later, Ms. Carroll filed for more damages after Mr. Trump, in a CNN town hall, said this is a fake story and also said that she's a whack job, referring to Ms. Carroll. By the way, if you want to learn more about the details of the Carroll and Trump civil case, I highly recommend that you listen to the New York Times podcast called The Daily, for which I've dropped a link in the detailed caption of this episode. I'm sure you noted that I started my remarks in the opening trailer of this episode, not about what the jury in the Carroll case had found. Rather, 
I open this podcast by telling you about what the jury did not find. Specifically, the jury did not find that Mr. Trump raped Ms. Carroll nearly 30 years ago, as Ms. Carroll has claimed for a long time. According to the New York Times, it was not clear why the jurors in Ms. Carroll's case found Mr. Trump liable for sexual abuse as opposed to rape. Also, just as a reminder, Mr. Masterson was not found guilty on one of the three counts of rape. So, in this episode, I want to speak with you, or rather have my guest, Professor Diane Rosenfeld, speak with you about rape, the legal, cultural, and social history of rape. The act of rape, at its very core, has to do with exertion of power on someone else, and it has to do with the raw exercise of violence. Yet, when it comes to rape, there are two issues that really intrigue me. Actually, that's really, that's not the correct word. Trouble me, that's what I mean to say, or perhaps terrify me because I worry about our society. Because we all have women in our lives whom we cherish, wives, daughters, mothers, and sisters. The first issue is this. In rape cases, we ask questions that, generally speaking, we don't seem to ask in other types of cases that involve violence. For example, in robbery, assault, burglary, kidnapping, and other such cases, we don't ask, did you fight back? Did you scream? For the record, during the cross-examination of Ms. Carroll, Mr. Trump's lawyer focused on the fact that Ms. Carroll had not screamed. And the second issue is this. The victim of a robbery, a burglary, an assault, or a kidnapping doesn't have to deal with some sort of a stigma that seems to linger on in our history and social culture when it comes to victims of rape. I'm talking about victim blaming. To better understand the crime of rape and its legal, social, and cultural history, I spoke with Professor Rosenfeld of Harvard Law School, where she teaches courses such as gender violence, law and social justice, theories of sexual coercion, and Title IX which is a federal civil rights law that protects discrimination based on sex. In addition to teaching at Harvard Law School, Professor Rosenfeld has taught several courses at Harvard College, including a seminar on creating cultures of sexual respect on campus. Prior to teaching, she served as the first senior counsel in the Office on Violence Against Women at the United States Department of Justice and as an Executive Assistant Attorney General at the Illinois Attorney General's Office. Professor Rosenfeld's research areas include Title IX and campus sexual assault prevention and response, prevention of intimate partner homicide, and addressing commercial sexual exploitation of women and girls. Her current focus is creating a bonobo-inspired sisterhood among women to overcome patriarchal violence. And if you're wondering what bonobo is, well, you've come to the right place. Professor Rosenfeld is the author of The Bonobo Sisterhood, Revolution Through Female Alliance, a recent book that we discuss in this episode. To learn more about Professor Rosenfeld, you can visit her academic page or personal website, the links for which are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. By the way, Professor Rosenfeld and I had this podcast conversation prior to Mr. Masterson's conviction, so there won't be any references to that criminal case here. So stay with me as Professor Rosenfeld and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Rosenfeld, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Happy to be here. Thanks. Rape is a crime, obviously. What I want to know is this. When did rape first appear as a crime on our books? Well, rape goes back to the Bible, and and many legal systems have had rape included, but rape was originally a crime of trespass to property and the property of the woman, the woman was the property and the husband or the father owned her. I'm sorry. Let's, can we, can we, I'm just, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around this. I'm sorry. Rape was a crime of trespass as in you're coming onto my house. Right. Right. It's trespass to your property as a male you owned your daughter or your wife. So so women were sold and traded and bartered in marriages to pay debts, et cetera. And in some, in some cultures, we still see traces of this. And that's the 
big part of the root of this problem is that rape has always been rooted in this idea of women as property and that the the crime was interpreted to be against the father or the husband, whoever owned her at the time, rather than a crime against her as an individual human being with rights to sexual autonomy and bodily integrity. So that's what we're looking at here. And in Blackstone's commentaries in the 17th century, when he was talking about rape, he he encapsulated how the laws reflected this idea of criminal trespass to property. Um, so based on this history, if a woman, let's say a 14-year-old, 15-year-old woman, girl, uh, is an orphan and is not married, then I guess there's no crime because there's nothing to trespass on because she's nobody's property. How would that work? Do you see, I'm just following your logic here, right? So she doesn't right. have parents and she's not married, so she doesn't have a husband. This is crazy. Right. So then maybe it would be a crime against the state. And in fact, yeah. that's how how rape law moved from being a crime um, against the husband or father into a crime against the state. And that's really significant to understand. So oh. if, somebody, if somebody is raped, and let's say it's a she, she cannot prosecute the rape herself. She's actually as a witness to the crime, but the crime is against the state. And that's one of the very big problems in prosecuting rape cases. But isn't that true about all crimes? Like, you know, if someone broke into your house, the the, the prosecutors prosecute the burglar, right? Right. But we don't, we don't have the same kind of gender bias at play. Yeah in prosecuting actual property crimes. Yeah, 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 I got it. But but when it comes to sexual or domestic violence, the law has particular ways of eluding women and any rights of redress in our legal system. And this is something about which I'm very concerned and have dedicated a lot of my professional career to, to reversing, to finding a different way. And it's also um, really significant that the crime of rape was always defined by men in a patriarchal legal system. So like, if you think about our constitution in the United States, it was made by propertied white men and there were not women at the table. All of our criminal definitions of rape are from the perspective of someone who could be charged with rape rather than someone who had been injured by somebody raping her. And I'm saying her, but I realize that rape happens across all genders, but it's 99% committed in the U.S. by men. So you talked about uh, our legal system and you mentioned the Constitution specifically. In our legal system, America, has rape always been defined as a crime? Or is there a date that you can say, point to saying, finally in 1856, I just made up that year, whatever, finally rape appeared as a crime? So jurisdictionally, criminal law is mostly a state question. Yeah. There are major offenses that are considered federal crimes and rape is mostly a defined as a state crime on a state by state uh, basis, and I think it probably has been on the books in some way since the beginning. Yeah. Public. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to your reference to, you know, rape and has always been defined. By men. Let's go to that. So, traditionally speaking, what are the legal elements of rape? So, those have changed and they're, as I say, different in different jurisdictions, but they have moved from the 20th century, where you, in many rape statutes, you, 
a rape victim had to show her utmost resistance and she had to report it, her utmost resistance, and she had to report it promptly. And that's, that has a lot of historic resonance as well. The idea like in Blackstone's time that you would run to the coroner of the next town and tell him of your injury. Hmm. So, um, so it's carnal knowledge with a female, not your wife, that was against her will. So in the 70s, for example, Susan Brown Miller wrote uh, a very important work called Against Our Will. And it's interesting because it's assumed that unless a woman shows that sex is or a sexual aggressive act is against her will, she's assumed to want it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and that's super problematic for all, for all kinds of reasons. As is the idea that you have to show your utmost resistance because if you're a female and you are socialized to be nonviolent and docile and pleasing in order to gain male protection, you're not going to be likely to have been trained to fight back. And if it's with somebody that you know well, you're most often disarmed. So you don't even, you're not even thinking about fighting back as you might be thinking about fighting back against a stranger. Yeah. Yet we expect we expect this. Well, why didn't she scream? Why didn't she fight back? We just saw that in the Eugene Carroll case. Yeah, which we're going to get in. Yeah. Um, when I when I think of resistance, uh, Professor Rosenfeld is um, first of all there's the initial shock that this is actually happening. Uh, imagine someone breaking into your home. I, I'm not saying women are probably that's not what I mean. I'm just bringing something familiar to everyone or break into your car. Right, I lived in San Francisco, so breaking into people's cars, you would see that often. It's that initial shock that something is happening actually. So the woman would have to overcome that a second when they say resistance a guy maybe six foot five and a woman is five i mean how real is that this is not like quote unquote like the kick-ass women of tv series you know uh this is um for our audience could you just um tell me who's blackstone please oh sir william blackstone was a, a very famous legal commentator who wrote treatises in the mid-17th century okay an English um, commentator, um, but Adele, that's a really that's a really good point because um, it's very unrealistic to expect that a woman in our society to expect that that a woman is able to fight back, and that it's more it's much more likely that she's in fear for her life. Yeah, and if somebody if somebody is sexually aggressive against you, they're already showing this level of contempt that for your you know for your being for your well-being so it's not like they have your your goodwill in mind when they're doing it you know what i mean it means that they are they're out to harm you exactly they're a big person out to harm you and you're a smaller person who's very well in fear in in a in a reasonable state of fear and women you know fight back in all kinds of ways um, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. A, a big takeaway from the book that I recently published called The Bonobo Sisterhood, Revolution Through Female Alliance, is to build a collective self-defense that is based on bonobo behavior where the females defend one another from male sexual coercion. So, and I'll explain that if a female bonobo was aggressed upon by a male, she would let out a special cry. And other females, all the other females within earshot, whether they know her, like her, or are related to her, come immediately to her aid and they fend off the male physically. So it's like a physical defense. And I want to figure out how we can adopt this kind of 
collective self-defense among humans because evolutionarily, bonobos have eliminated male sexual coercion. And they're very peaceful and they have, in fact, a lot of sex, but it's mutually wanted sex instead of is this in this primate uh, uh, species? Is this sex for pleasure or sex for procreation purposes? Uh, both. Both. Okay. But I would say more more pleasure because, and that's also a very good question. Um, we see in all other primates, male sexual coercion against females, where females are used as reproductive resources. Whereas bonobos, in their differently structured social order, where the females and their alliances define the social order, they enjoy reproductive autonomy. And that's a very important message worth looking at right now in the U.S., where we have just lost all rights to reproductive autonomy, pretty much. Yeah. Um, in your book, um, you talk about... I'll just read this. Women can break down barrier among themselves to unleash their power as a unified force. That that was intriguing to me. What do you mean barrier among themselves? What barriers are there between women, among women? They're in a patriarchy, just as a social order. So let me just clarify that when I talk about patriarchy, it's not an indictment of men. It's an indictment of a system of male alliances to dominate and control females. But it's men are definitely hurt in many particular ways in a patriarchy, mm-hmm. even though it's sold as a benefit to them. So many men, for example, are sexually abused, but yeah. they, they can't talk about it because the, the tropes of masculinity in our society won't allow any emotional space for men to, you know, to, to express themselves, or, right, or to or to get help or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so, so the book does talk a lot about how important it is to examine the effects of a patriarchal social order on our on every system on. Yeah. On everybody's rights um, to be human and to thrive. Um, we'll be back. Uh, let's take a break here, Professor Rosenfeld. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk more about the legal intricacies and impacts of the crime of rape. We'll be right back. Back in 2021, when former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned after allegations of sexual harassment surfaced, I spoke with Dr. Carrie Baker of Smith College about the history of the movement against sexual harassment, which started back in 1975. Amazingly, the rates of sexual harassment have not really changed since 1975. As Dr. Baker explains it, sexual harassment is about power. This is a fascinating story that you can find in Season 1, Episode 27, or you can just click the link for it in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Rosenfeld. Professor Rosenfeld, in the last segment, you touched on 20th century elements, the required elements to show rape, and you said that uh, the female needs to show the utmost resistance and report promptly. Um, has that changed now? Yes and no. Yes and no. Okay. It has changed technically in a lot of places, but not in how society talks about rape and the expectations that we place on rape victims as if there's one way to be a victim, which there is not. There are as many ways to experience rape as there are people. I'm I'm sorry to say, you know, but um, but most people don't tell. And then if they do tell, they tell some trusted friend, but so much of rape is unreported. Um, I do a fair amount of work on campus sexual assault 
and representing students um, under Title IX. And um, rape is the most and has been the most um, underreported crime that we know of. Why is that? Um, and by the way, I appreciate that I'm a man asking that question. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I hope it doesn't come across as insensitive. But really, why is that? No, I, we have to have these conversations. And, you know, we have to create space for for men to ask these questions. So you're not being offensive, but I appreciate your sensitivity to it. Sure. Um, well, one reason is that people are afraid that they won't be believed and they know that they're going to be questioned. So if you take, for example, uh, a typical, I'm sad to say, a typical rape case at a college and say that a young woman goes to um, a fraternity party and the theme of the party is some variant on pimp and hoe, which is a still the most common theme for a college party. And pimp so and hoe? Yeah. And then there are so many variations on this, like CEOs and office hoes, for example, in which the power position is always allocated to the male and the sexualized toy position is allocated to the female. So, so say that she's dressed up, you know, um, as an office hoe, right. And she's, you know, she's dressed in a short skirt and high heels and she gets roofied and she wakes up the next morning in some unknown fraternity guy's room and she's wearing a t-shirt and she doesn't know where it came from and and say she's in pain. Is she going to report that or is she going to think, okay, so if I report that, the first question is going to be, and where were you and how were you dressed? And you know, this I've seen firsthand the skepticism that prosecutors have towards women who report rape and the lack of sensitivity and the victim blaming is endemic in the system. It's not like there's even a group to go to um, that will really help prosecute your rape case. And then when prosecutors do actually prosecute, um, the level of success is very low. It's like between two and 4% of rape cases are successfully prosecuted. Two to 4%? Yeah. So the criminal justice system does not address rape in any effective way. The civil justice system is a different question and you can get damages in the civil justice system, but that has its own problem. Like Ms. Carroll did. Exactly. Before uh, the outcome of her case came out, did you think she's going to win? I mean, legally speaking. Um, yes, I thought that she had enough evidence um, through the depositions and, and through the years that she would, um, that she had a very strong case and that he had established such a lack of credibility that it, it would be hard for him to overcome it. Yeah. You know, and that said, I was I was very pleased with the verdict and, and a little surprised. Why don't we take a short break here and talk about proving rape in court and also the statute of limitations? Great. Professor Rosenfeld, how do we prove elements of rape? when it's the word of one person against another in court? That's a really, really, really good question. I wanna say that it's extremely important to recognize that evidence laws and rules were all written by men. All of the elements were written by men. All the elements of rape and the definitions of rape, what constitutes rape and how to prove it are written by men according to according to what what they think is is punishable or deserving of of possible punishment um, but it's not at all about the injury to the person and it's never from her perspective 
And, you know, we say, well, it's a he said, she said case. So how are we ever going to, yeah. um, to evaluate it fairly? Um, and I have a couple of things to say about that. The first is that in all other cases, it's one party saying one thing and another party saying another thing. That's what cases are. They're two <laughs> variations of the same that's story. A, that, that's an excellent point. That 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 dilemma applies to many other legal cases when there are no you, you're not doing this in a public square, maybe you know, beating somebody up or or right. murdering right. or that okay. Right. And and I had this experience a few years ago. I was um in another country and um our hotel room was robbed. And when I realized that all of the electronics were missing from the hotel room, I called management and um, they came immediately. They investigated immediately. Like they took me at my word and they figured out, they like got the tapes and like within an hour, they had pieced together what had happened, had a suspect, you know, on tape. And then they, you know, I knew that they were going to, to prosecute that. And, and I was thinking, wow, what if this was, you know, goddess forbid, you know, what if this had been me reporting a rape and what if I were, oh, a less advantaged person trying to report this? And what if my um, abuser had had significant power? Would they have listened to me? Would they have like investigated and taken me seriously and and taken me at my word? So like the criminal you justice- You mean in that country or also in the United States? I mean, I mean, I mean all over. Yeah. But I'm thinking, I was thinking about the United States. The criminal justice system is supposed to take you at your word and then investigate and then prosecute cases when they find evidence. And in rape cases, they most often try to get rid of the case before they even investigate it. Really? Yeah. Like, well, we have no evidence of that. So, so we can't prosecute the case before they even really do an investigation of it. Like there are rape kits across the country that are untested because Prosecutors would often create the dilemma for rape victims saying, well, you have to decide that you're going to prosecute this case, that you'll go along with the prosecution if we deign to do your rape kit. Um, and and an, organization, an organization created by Amanda Wynn called RISE um, has been very effective at creating new laws to get states to test rape kits, whether or not there's going to be a prosecution so that the victim and survivor um, can make that decision in an informed way of whether or not she wants to go forward. And Explain to me what you mean by test, test the case. Oh, I mean the DNA. That if a woman- Oh, I yeah, see. Oh, oh you, you weren't talking like a legal test of a- no, of I'm a, talking of about a rape kit. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I misunderstood you. Evidence. I'm talking yeah, about yeah. scientific evidence. Um, and and I understand that um, Eugene Carroll had a DNA test of the dress that she was wearing, and that it was ruled inadmissible, but that she has the evidence. I'm wondering why it was ruled inadmissible. Um, let's go to statute of limitations that was at play in Ms. Carroll's case. Um, First, how long, just typically, I'm, I'm sure it varies, how long is a typical statute of limitation uh, in our country? Two years? Five years? Yeah, yeah. And, and it depends on it depends on the crime and uh, yeah. if it's a crime or if it's a civil case. Um, but what happened in Carol's case was that there was this particular statute that was enacted because rape victims and survivors experience trauma in different ways and are not, you know, often don't want to go ahead with the case or are unable to go ahead with the case. What um, you were talking about in the previous segment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For many years. So, so that statute made it, um, what was a statute written from a victim and a survivor's perspective? that the trauma goes on for somebody's lifetime in many cases. So, yeah. uh, so it's not like there's a statute of limitations on, on the harm. And and some people take a long time to even realize that process they, it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, like a lot of college students 
um, will just try to put it out of their mind until they're so unfortunately traumatized that they're, you know, they're unable to perform in classes, for example. What do you say to, to detractors, to men who come and say, well, if we open cases, if we allow cases, let's say from 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, come to the fore, albeit in a civil case, then all evidence will be lost, they're faded, memories are gone. How's that even fair? This is a very important question because we're talking about delayed reporting of a case, right? What's right. the comeback? What, what's the comeback to that? That you you trust the justice system to do its job in all other cases. So why wouldn't you trust it in this case? It's not like men are being wrongfully convicted um, overwhelmingly for rape. Um but, you know, it, there's a jury they're sitting and listening to this. Right. I, I mean, there are so many biases that infect our our justice system, and I'm, and I'm quite sensitive to them and want to have a system in which we test for these biases. You know, like just as we just as we can screen jurors for racial bias, we should be able to screen jurors for gender bias and racial bias. Mm hmm. Those are absolutely not separate things, um, but we don't we don't try to find out if there's a, you know a man on a jury. We don't try to find out what his level of contempt or misogyny towards women is. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Rosenfeld as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Rosenfeld, uh, how rare or likely are rape cases prosecution? Rape is the most under-prosecuted, under-reported crime that we know of. And um, so I want to, so only two to 4% of rape cases criminally are successful. And we don't know the exact rate of prosecution because we don't have any way to find out the declination rate of prosecutors. And what I mean by that is how many cases came in the door to a prosecutor's office that the prosecutor said, nope, we're not going to prosecute this for any number of reasons. Oh, they don't keep track of that? They they have no, there's no requirement that they tell the public um, how many cases that they've declined. I see. Um, wow. And that's that's that could be something really helpful um, to improve our criminal justice system response to rape, because I've seen prosecutors try to talk rape victims out of prosecuting cases. I don't just read about it in my ivory tower, <laughs> and I'm shocked every time I see it. But I remember, you know, I remember going with. Um, going with a survivor to talk to um, a prosecutor and the prosecutor said, well, you know, they're going to get all of your mental health records and we're going to have to make those public and on and on and on. And I said, and she was trying to talk the, the victim out of prosecuting the case. And, and I pushed back on her and then she's like, no, actually that's not true. You know, cause it doesn't happen automatically, but, but, you know, I hear about prosecutors trying to dissuade victims from coming forward Prosecutors oh. want, want cases that they can win and yeah. they want to look like good prosecutors. So, so they do the drug cases and the robbery cases or white collar crime. And, and they say that they can't win rape cases, but I think it's laziness. Two questions. One, in this example, you said she, the prosecutor was prosecutor a woman. Was a woman in that case. Yeah. 
and she was reluctant to take the case. Right. Or, okay. And you also said uh, you you replied to her that it's not true, that it's not automatic that we'll get your mental health right. record. What does mental health records have to do with a rape case? Um, that if you've gone to see a therapist about it, for example, if you've sought help because of the of the likely trauma that you've suffered, um, that the the defense might ask for those records. What if a person is not a sort of person that goes to therapists? I know a lot of people, especially right. um, immigrants or first generation immigrants that they may be well to do and educated. It's just not in their culture to go see therapists. Right. Is that a negative? If you don't see therapists? Yeah, to, to proving no. the case. No, no, not <laughs> it's, at all. I, it's and funny. I, definitely, I, def, I definitely don't want your listeners to take away from this conversation that they sh that they would be vulnerable um, to having their mental health records exposed if they reported a sexual assault or rape case. Yeah, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if a prosecutor tells you that those would be automatically open to the public, that's not true. I'm glad you're saying that because um, it's it's important for uh, women to know that. Let's talk about this trauma that can build up over months and years. Um, in the prior segment, you talked about, um, you gave an example of a college woman who may be raped, uh, maybe at a party. And then, you know, she sort of decides not to voice anything about it. She's not letting it go, but she's not manifesting any grievance or may not even be chatting about, about it with even friends, you know? Um, I want to know whether or not this stigma of being sexually attacked or raped is something that has stayed constant in the last half a century, you know, post-1970s. Do we still have this stigma? So that's a that's a really interesting question with I think some very different angles. So I would say that the Me Too movement, especially in its second iteration after Ashley Judd came out publicly against Harvey Weinstein yeah. and named him, and then the floodgates opened and, and Tarana Burke's organization just, you know, went viral. Um, and now there are millions of survivors all over the world who are part of the Me Too international movement. And I think that because of that, it has reduced significantly the stigma attached to the victim and instead is advocating that the stigma be placed on the person who caused it. You know, and if we can do that societally, that would be real progress but it absolutely should not be borne by the person against whom it was inflicted. Have you come across any cases, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, where um, a woman accused anyone of sexual violence against her or rape, and it turned out to be completely false, completely made up? I, I can't think of any, but this is your expertise. I was wondering if this is something yeah, actually, actually, I have not. Yeah, um, I haven't either. Yeah, and it's and a I, lot to put one through just to stick it to someone, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, un unfortunately, I've I've witnessed exactly the opposite. And this one case that I um, observed firsthand, um, the prosecutor took the case because it was a very strong perfect case and the jury came back and acquitted the rapist and in interviews they said that they believed the victim but they didn't want to send the rapist to jail because he had graduated college and they didn't want to ruin his future and wow. in the yeah. wow. so they believe the rape victim. Yes, they believed her. And this happens so much. There's this 
there's this whole area where people believe the victim, but they just don't want to punish the perpetrator. And, you know, our prison system, our carceral system is not the best result for rape or for any crime. If bonobos were in charge of society, we would they would not have invented little rooms to put, you know, to put men in for the rest of their lives. They wouldn't do that. Like they, going back to the bonobo example that I gave at the beginning of the show, um, the females bond together, they form an instantaneous coalition and they fend off the aggressive male and they send him into isolation for a while, but then he comes back into the group and he's welcomed and he changes his behavior. So evolutionarily, they have eliminated male sexual coercion. How could the bonobo example apply to current contemporary America, especially in a rape case when there's just two people? Well, there aren't always just two people. I think that that's, you know, like I said, there's always- Or like the party setting that you were talking about in college, for for example. Going to be witnesses, and um, many, many times—a shocking amount of time—in my experience, um, when one victim survivor comes forward, other people come forward against the same person because so often it's serial perpetration, and because in society we don't hold perpetrators accountable, and it's just like, oh yeah, we know that we know that dude is aggressive, or we know he has that reputation, and. He gets, he likes to get girls drunk and then, you know, have sex with them, which is in the, in the bonobo um, example that you just shared with us. And it's in in your whole book uh, is about that. And and this issue that, that process would still have to go through a legal system. You're not advocating for women to take this on themselves, right? Right. They would help each other to go through the legal system, some sort of process, right? I am advocating for women to take a bonobo sisterhood self-worth defending course so that it's a self-defense course imbued with the principles of the bonobo sisterhood. Because when women, girls, and their allies who have been marginalized develop the sense that they, and the knowledge that they have a self-worth defending, which you get from a self-defense class, it makes them able to defend themselves. It informs them at a somatic level that they can defend themselves and that they can then defend their sisters. And that seems to be the bonobo principle. It's empowering. Yeah. The bonobos seem to act on a principle that like no one has the right to harm, threaten, coerce my sister, right? I'm coming to her aid and everybody's my sister. And if women act on, on that principle, instead of being divided, we talked a little bit earlier about the divisions Mm -hmm. between women in patriarchy, where women are divided against one another for male protection. If we can get rid of those divisions and realize that what we have in common is so much more important than than our differences and that we can be so much more powerful when we act together than when we accept patriarchal divisions against one another, that's when the revolution is going to happen. I'm interested in your words. women divided for male protection. And I wanna go back to the uh, experience that you had. You were sitting and watching this trial in which the jury acquitted the rapist, even though they they, they believed the victim. And they essentially, based on what you're saying, they did it for his protection because he was a college grad. That just boggles the mind here. Um, Is this a case that, well, let me ask this. Were there any women in that jury? Uh, some. Do you know how, I what? Think that, I think. I mean, I think that it speaks to the idea that we need 
non-carceral responses to the problem of sexual aggression. We need a new conversation about it, and we need also to realize the extent to which patriarchy creates and enforces laws about women's bodies and women's lives and women's experiences. And, and you know, patriarchy by definition is ruling over and dominating women. And it, you know, you can't have a healthy human society that is premised on the domination of half the population. So just like reapproaching everything from that perspective changes everything. And this idea of a collective self-defense will lead to new new laws and new ways of being and new societies and, and new conversations first. Have you thought of any ideas about a non-carceral way of dealing with this? Um, sure. I mean, I think that um, social currency is a really important concept that when um, – when somebody, when when there's a really aggressive male in a friend group, for example, for the friends to say, nope, you're not, you have no social currency with us anymore because of your behavior. Like, I think that, I think that that really matters. Um, and I think women supporting one another on social media, for example, is really important. Um, I identify ways towards the end of the book of women doing a new inquiry about equality and thinking of equality instead of in terms of women's relationship to men, where men are the standard to which we want to aspire. aspire. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, that we say, what if we think about all women are created equal? And all, all, I'm sorry, all women are created equal. That's what you said? Among, yes, amongst each other. And then we start to do our own interrogation of our own privileges and resources. We define our own resources, and then we share them with other women so that we promote an equality among women. And those resources include protection. They also include food and care and help. So it's a question of currency and like the bonobos, a bonobo currency is in our future that's defined not in a patriarchy, not like our social currency. Yeah. So, so you think all of this will eventually also impact the crime of rape and its prevalence and its lack of prosecution in our society? Yeah. This is a holistic way of dealing with this. Uh, problem. Yes. Yes. And it's also like to take away the value, to change the value of male protection in a society will change everything. So I'm going to give Wait, you- Say that again. Say that again. To change the value of male protection- In a society uh -huh. changes everything. So for example- but By that you mean that we don't need men to protect us. That's what you right. mean. Okay. Because right. the question is, what do women need male protection from. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Adele, what do, men, <laughs> what do women need male protection from? Other men, right? Uh -huh, thank you. Okay. Um, so um, if you take that away and women can protect each other, it's going to lead to a revolution. And to a much more healthy, thriving human experience. Bonobos have no lethal violence. Chimpanzees do. There's been no infanticide ever observed in bonobos. That's interesting. They're they're peaceful, they share their food, they like I said, they're very sexually active. And you know, it's just I'm not saying that we adopt, you know part and parcel bonobo society, obviously. I'm saying that their models of behavior are really informative to an alternative to patriarchy. Bonobos are living proof that patriarchy is not inevitable.
Patriarchy is rather, in my opinion, a social system that needs constant reinforcement through the toleration of sexual violence to keep its place. Do you think the Me Too movement, or let me ask it this way, since the Me Too movement, especially second uh, iteration that, that you pointed out after Ashley Judd um, um, came forward about uh, Weinstein, do you think there, that we have seen more manifestations of the bonobo culture in American women or no? I think that it's the first stage of it. So when I gave the example about how a bonobo who is aggressed upon by a male will send out a cry, I think of the Me Too movement as a bonobo cry and other bonobos, you know, coming coming to her aid to hear her cry. But what the bonobo sisterhood does is take that movement, take the Me Too movement and vehiculate it, make it into something actionable in a societal redefinition. And the action is that we actually physically defend one another, stand up for one another, whether we know each other, like each other, or are related to each other. And just realize the bonobo principle. No one has the right to do that to my sister. Everybody's my sister. The end. That's my whole book in 20 words or less. <laughs> um, no, I didn't say that. I really like your audience. So please, please, please read my book and be in touch. And for I, sure. I hope, um, you're, I hope you're... it inspires some new conversation. What I call for in the book is thinking about starting over. And if we had a unified declaration against patriarchal violence, what would that look like? What yeah. kind of rights do we want to see and actualize for our sisters and ourselves? What kind of world do we want to see? Yeah. And I, we haven't, women haven't done that on, on a very big level really since Seneca Falls. Although there was in the 70s a National Women's Political Caucus that was really interesting and very unknown, where it looked like um, the feminist movement was going to get some real legal traction. And um, and then it got derailed. Yeah. And, and for our audience, uh, could you tell them what Seneca Falls, what's the importance of Seneca Falls? We go back to 1800s. Is that it? Yeah, Seneca Falls was in, um, it was the first convention of women. It was yeah. called the Declaration of Sentiments in 1848. And Seneca yeah. Falls is in upstate New York. Yeah. And, and if you go back to the declaration, there's still so much work undone. And the most significant result of that was uh, 70 years later, women got the right to vote in the United States. Yeah. It took a long time. Um, I, mean, I mean, can we get the ERA in this country? Like, that's the question now. And we absolutely need well, it. Well, we started that in the 70s, but then that lapsed, right? Um, that's arguable because there still is a legal path to having the ERA ratified now. Which came up, um, Nancy Pelosi and others brought it up just a couple of years ago, right? Yes, it's, it's, being, it's being actively discussed right now in, in the yeah. Senate. Yeah, it's important. We should we should revisit that, and and that's an amendment to the Constitution for women's rights. Right. Yeah. Um, in the minute we have left, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about U.S. rape laws, after everything we've talked about, what would it be? Um, that they were not written and are not enforced to protect women from rape or to represent women after they've been raped and that everyone has the right to be free from sexual violence and we have to stand up for ourselves and one another to redefine and reclaim that right. Wonderful. Professor Rosenfeld, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners and to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much, Professor Rosenfeld. That was really enjoyable. So nice to meet you. Same here.
The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. Music